The letter to the Galatians is explosive. I call it the TNT of the Bible. Its message blows up ritualistic and legalistic thinking. It's a treatise on Christian love and liberty. This book can set you free. Galatians is the bomb. This book gripped the heart of a medieval monk named Martin Luther and transformed his way of relating to God. It became the catalyst for a revival that history now refers to as the Protestant Reformation. Luther wrote of this book as he would his wife. He said, this epistle is my epistle. To it I am as it were in wedlock. Galatians is my Catherine. Proving too that all great preachers are married to a lady named Catherine. <laughs> One thing is for sure, I believe all Christians should be married to the message of this book. We begin, verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Ancient Galatia is today central Turkey. The original Galatians were immigrants from France. Julius Caesar once commented on the Galatians, they are fickle. They are fond of change. They are not to be trusted. And that's the type of people we find in Acts 13 and 14 when Paul first took the gospel within their borders. It was at the gate of Lystra that Paul healed a lame man. The superstitious Galatians assumed that Paul was some Greek god. And so they offered him a sacrifice that he refused. Later, though, those same fickle folks were swayed by Paul's enemies. With rocks, they attempted an assassination by stoning. They tried to make him their sacrifice. And in a sense, rocks were still being thrown at the Apostle Paul when he wrote this letter. You see, certain Jews were threatened by the grace that Paul preached. And when they couldn't kill him, they tried to assassinate his character and throw shade on his apostleship. Where were his credentials? Who appointed this guy Paul? This is why he introduces himself here, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ. Ultimately, Paul's commission came not from a man, or a church, or a denomination, but from Jesus himself. I remember shortly after Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain started, I went to the local Baptist church to ask if we could use their baptistry. People were getting saved. They were coming to Christ, and they needed to be baptized. But when I went to pick up the key, the pastor asked me, he said, the deacons want to know, are you ordained? I said, well, I guess so. God's blessing our ministry. He said, no, have you been officially ordained? It wasn't enough that God was using me. They wanted to see paperwork. Well, the irony is, is that you can have a wall full of ordination certificates and it only amount to wallpaper if God's hand isn't on your life. God's ordination is the only one that really counts. And it's the one that Paul appeals to here. He greets them, grace to you and peace. Here's Paul's familiar greeting. Grace and peace have been called the Siamese twins 
of the New Testament. You know, Siamese twin refers to siblings conjoined at birth. They share a vital organ and they remain connected for life. They can't live without the other. Did you know the first twins referred to as Siamese were Chang and Ng Bunker? Born in Thailand in the 1800s, they came to America and they married sisters. They fathered 21 kids. And you think your family has strange dynamics. But likewise, grace and peace stay joined together. You can't have one without the other. You can't enjoy the peace of God without first knowing the grace of God. And grace, rightly understood, always produces peace. The two work together to bear fruit in believing hearts. And then he says in verse 3, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And in most of Paul's letters, this is where he inserts his prayer, the prayer that he was praying for that particular church. But in regards to the Galatians, Paul's heart was too heavy for that. There's a burning issue he needs to address first. He says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Now remember, the Galatians were gullible and fickle folk. They were prone to fall for falsehoods. Paul says they were turning away from the gospel of grace. The phrase literally means defecting to the other side. The verb tense implies that they were not there yet, but they were getting closer and closer. Their faith was vacillating. They were losing their grip on God's grace. They were being lured away by a different gospel. If you study the religions of the world, you'll identify hundreds, if not thousands, of different religions. But I suggest there are really only two religions in the world. There is the hand of man reaching up to God, and there is the hand of God reaching down to man. All religions except one can be summarized as man's attempts to please God. They emphasize keeping rules or performing rituals. It's self-reliance. Oh, but Christianity is God's hand reaching down to man. God is reaching down through Christ, doing for us what we can never do for ourselves. This is the true gospel. In fact, Paul says that this different gospel is not really a gospel at all. It's not good news. He says in verse 7, which is not another but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. The Galatians were buying into a distorted version of the truth. You see, I believe Satan still distorts God's truth in three ways. Sometimes he twists it. At other times he subtracts from it. And still at other times he adds to it. And sometimes he even does all three. You see, Satan can twist or he can wrench the interpretation of a verse. He makes it say what it was never intended to say. Thus the old adage, a text out of context becomes a pretext. 
Satan is good at misconstruing meanings. Satan can also subtract from the truth. He dilutes its meaning. A.W. Tozer once said, Some have so watered down the gospel that if it were a medicine, it could not cure us. And if it were a poison, it would not harm us. A gospel without repentance of sin is no gospel at all. And at times, Satan adds to the truth. This was the strategy that was threatening the Galatians. False teachers, they were called Judaizers, agreed that salvation was by grace through faith. But, oh, and be careful of the buts. I hope you read the fine print. But they had added to the cross. See, here was the Judaizer spiel. Yes, Jesus died to forgive us. But if you really want to please God, you need to start doing stuff. And they had a long list of add-ons, mandatory do's and don'ts. The bottom line was that faith in Christ was not really enough. You had to add to it good works. This is what Paul calls a different gospel. It was not a gospel at all, he says. A wise old preacher once advised his young apprentice, preach a full gospel, Christ and nothing less. A plain gospel, Christ and nothing more. And a pure gospel, Christ and nothing else. Well, Paul continues in verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And this is strong language. The Greek word accursed is anathema. It means damned to hell. See, Paul couldn't have refuted any other gospel more forcefully. And he repeats it to make the message even more emphatic. He says, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you, then what you have received, let him be accursed. Even if an angel dressed in white robes and shining lights comes and sits at the foot of your bed and preaches to you a gospel different from the grace that Paul had delivered to them, let that angel be damned. That's what he says. You know, if Joseph Smith had taken this advice from Paul when he heard the baloney from the Angel Moroni, millions of folks wouldn't be headed to hell today under the law of Mormonism. If Muhammad hadn't listened to a supposed angel, millions would not be deceived by Islam today. Paul knew angels come in two varieties, faithful and fallen. And fallen angels are demons as we know them, specialized in inspiring different gospels. This is why we need to be firmly grounded in the truth of God's grace. And to recognize another gospel, we have to know the true gospel. This is why it's vital for God's people to become educated in God's word. This is what we try to do week in and week out here at Calvary Chapel. Did you hear of the girl who bought a parrot to keep her company? But she couldn't get the bird to talk. Well, she went to the pet store and she complained to the owner. He said, well, does your bird have a little mirror in the cage? You know, parrots, they love mirrors. And so she bought a mirror. She took it home. She opened up the cage and she put the little mirror in there, but the bird still wouldn't talk. Well, so she returned to the pet store and she complained again. 
This time the owner said, well, does your parrot have a ladder? You know, parrots love ladders, and a happy parrot is a talkative parrot. So she purchased one of those little ladders. She brought it home, put it in the cage, but not a peep from the parrot. Well, so she went back a third time. This time the owner told her, said, why don't you try a swing? You know, parrots love those little swings. Get him swinging, and he'll talk up a storm. And so she bought a swing. Well, two days later, she returned to the pet store. When the owner asked her about the parrot, the woman announced that he was dead. The owner was shocked. He asked the woman, he said, my, he said, did your parrot ever say anything? The woman replied, yes, just before he died, in a very soft, faint, weak whisper, my parrot asked me, don't they sell any food at that pet store? You see, so often churches think that they need mirrors, pop psychology and introspection, or they need ladders, step-by-step rules and self-help approaches, or they need swings, experiential or feelings-based religion. They try to entertain God's people with mirrors and ladders and swings, but what God's people really can't live without is God's Word. Well, verse 10 For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? You know, Paul's stoning in Lystra was proof his goal was to obey God, not please people. For if I still pleased men, I would not be a servant of Christ. You know, living the Christian life requires making choices that are not always popular. And if my goal is to be well-liked and fashionable and accepted at all costs, it's only a matter of time before I'll compromise. We need to settle this issue in our hearts before it comes up in our lives. Who do we intend to please? As one author puts it, it is a great freedom to know who owns you. If you do not know to whom you belong, You are apt to be the pawn of anyone whose identity is strong enough to overwhelm your own sense of inadequacy. How true that is. And so here's my question for you. Who owns you? Verse 11. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it. But it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, the gospel that Paul preached was not his own idea. Rather than born from his own imagination, the gospel came by God-given revelation. He says, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation." See, Paul's gospel wasn't produced by his imagination, and neither was it the result of his Jewish education. He sure wasn't taught about God's grace in the Jewish yeshivas that he had attended. His former rabbis weren't upholders. They were upholders of the law. They weren't dispensers of grace. He had not learned about grace from the Jewish institutions he'd attended. He adds in verse 14, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. You see, the gospel didn't come to Paul through imagination or education 
or perspiration. Notice he says, I was exceedingly zealous. He worked hard at climbing the ladder of legalism in Judaism. But that's not where he found God's amazing grace. He says in verse 15, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me. The gospel came to Paul, not through imagination or education or perspiration, but through revelation. God himself revealed his son in Paul. And notice God's plan for Paul's life started long before he came to Christ. Even before he was born. He says, from his mother's womb, God had a purpose for Paul. And this is true of all human beings. God values human life. And he has a plan for us from conception. This is why we should support an unborn baby's right to life. To me, it's no accident. This is our text the Sunday before we vote. Remember, on the road to Damascus, Jesus revealed himself to Paul. But here he mentions a different experience. When Jesus was revealed in Paul. See, this may have happened while he was still blinded from the bright lights. Or maybe later, during his days in Arabia. But truly, the wonder of Christianity is that it's more than just a set of truths that we learn. It's a living Lord we experience in our hearts. Christ was revealed in Paul. Has Christ been revealed in you? So that I might preach him among the Gentiles. This was Paul's goal. You know, until the day he died, he loved his fellow Jews. But taking the gospel to the Gentiles was his calling from the start. And after God had called him, he tells us what happened. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Interestingly, when Paul was first saved, he didn't rush out to teach a Bible study or to join a church. No, he wanted to seek the Lord personally and privately. And so he went into the wilderness of Arabia, into the desert. He wanted to seek God before he consulted with anyone else. Just goes to prove that God homeschools his kids. Now, obviously, I like pastors. Most of them are okay. I guess I am one. And sermons are helpful. I enjoy sermons. But often, we can spend so much time listening to men that we never slow down and listen to God. You know, I think it's unhealthy when folks can tell you what the pastor said on Sunday, but not what God said to them on Monday. If we look to men and not to God, we get duplication. Not revelation, not inspiration, duplication. Hey, what makes an authentic Christian isn't imagination or education or perspiration or duplication, but a personal revelation from God. In 1996, British scientists, they successfully cloned a sheep that they named Dolly. It was the first mammal cloned from an adult cell. The experiment was hailed as a scientific breakthrough. But when I heard about it, I remember thinking, I said, hey, that's no big deal. The church has been cloning sheep for centuries. 
Rather than producing authentic, genuine thinking, spirit-led believers, so often our churches are full of cookie-cutter Christians. We're stamped from the same mold rather than shaped personally by the Holy Spirit. Christian musician Steve Taylor, he once wrote a song that he called, I Want to Be a Clone. Here's a little snippet from it. I've gone through so much other stuff that walking down the aisle was tough, but now I know it's not enough. I want to be a clone. I asked the Lord into my heart. They said that was the way to start, but now you got to play the part. I want to be a clone. They told me that I'd fall away unless I followed what they say. Who needs the Bible anyway? I want to be a clone. So now I see the whole design. The church is an assembly line. The parts are there. I'm feeling fine. I want to be a clone. I've learned enough to stay afloat, but not so much I rocked the boat. I'm glad they shoved it down my throat. I want to be a clone. And then the bridge, it sort of ties it all together. Because if you want to be one of his, you got to act like one of us. Hey, Paul was nobody's clone. He followed God authentically and genuinely. And nor would Paul expect any of us to be somebody's clone. Our goal is to be transformed into the image of Jesus, not conformed into an image contrived by man. Well, he says in verse 18, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter, and I remained with him 15 days. Oh, to have been a fly on the wall for that conversation. Can you imagine? Christianity's chief leader, Peter, and its former chief antagonist, Paul, together in the very same room. What in the world did they discuss? He says, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed before God, I do not lie. Apparently the false teachers had accused Paul of lying. He continues to trace his steps immediately after his conversion. He says, afterwards, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they were hearing only, he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God in me. Paul himself was the surest validation of the gospel that he had preached. The grace of God had turned the persecutor into a preacher. Chapter 2. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. Now this was after Paul's first missionary journey, after he had gone into Galatia, preaching the gospel among the Gentiles. And so he went back up to Jerusalem, and this time he took Barnabas, his Jewish sidekick, and Titus, one of his Gentile converts, back to Jerusalem. And I went up by revelation and I communicated to them, the church of Jerusalem, that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. And here is a good qualifier for all that Paul's going to say now in chapter 2. He ended up unbudging in his stand for God's grace. But his staunch conviction was forged by honest and humble reflection. 
Paul didn't serve the Lord in some ministerial vacuum. Here he tells us he went up to Jerusalem lest he had run in vain. You know, sometimes Christians in ministry, they get isolated. We start to think that our way is the only way, but not Paul. He wasn't afraid to concede that he could be wrong. Now, he knew his gospel was true, but he was open to the possibility that there had been something he had missed. And thus, he went to Jerusalem to bounce his ideas off the brethren. That's a good thing to sometimes do, bounce your ideas off other brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Now in Jerusalem, Paul found Jews who tried to force Titus, a Gentile, to conform to Old Testament rituals. They wanted him to be circumcised. They wanted him to surrender his freedom in Christ and embrace their Jewish tradition. Now, this was not what Paul expected to find among the Jerusalem believers. It was obvious to him the church had been infiltrated. And Paul tells us by whom. He says, and this occurred because of false brethren, secretly brought in, who came in by stealth. They were sneaky to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. The phrase false brethren is the Greek word pseudodelphus. It's a compound word, pseudo, which means bogus, and delphos, which means brother. Bogus brethren had infiltrated the church. The New English Bible translates the phrase sham Christians. See, Paul was a defender of the faith. These guys were pretenders of the faith. They were probably Pharisees who had sneaked into the circle. They may even have professed Christ and thought they were Christians, but they spewed a dangerous mixture of faith plus law. We know this bunch as the infamous Judaizers. Acts 13 and 14, these Jews followed Paul while he was in Galatia. Now they have followed him all the way to Jerusalem. Always remember, friends, the people most dangerous to the body of Christ aren't the defiant blasphemers or the ardent atheists. No, our worst enemy is the bogus brother. It's the fellow with the mixture of grace and grunt. You see, lethal is the guy who teaches you can obtain God's favor by grace, but then you have to maintain God's favor through this or that. Turn this guy loose in your church, and one day you'll wake up to a divided church. See, all playgrounds have a bully, and sadly, so do churches. And over time, the bully's version of righteousness becomes the dividing line between the spiritual haves and the have-nots. He or she defines who loves God and who's carnal. The rules they deem as important and the rituals they decide must be kept become the badge everyone needs to wear if they're going to be labeled spiritual. A spiritual bully puts off airs that will kill the life and growth of a church. It's grace that creates a mood of acceptance. It's grace that allows folks to grow at their own pace. It's grace that keeps people open to God rather than stifled by their own failures. 
Friends, let's not budge an inch when it comes to God's grace. We need to make grace the modus operandi of all that goes on here at Calvary Chapel. In verse 5, Paul refuses to give in to the Judaizers. He says, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, and the truth that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. And don't underestimate the pressure that Paul was under to capitulate. To a Jew, Titus getting circumcised, that was a minor concession. To a Jew. Besides, the church was facing a major rift. I can hear the peacenik squawking. Paul, stop being divisive. You're threatening our unity. Yet Paul understood the one thing more important than our unity is the truth. He discerned at this critical moment that truth was more important than truce. You know, the legalist, he comes, he appears sincere and disciplined and outwardly righteous. And you think, how can I oppose him? The the ritualist, he comes. He has the weight of hundreds of years of tradition on his side. Who am I to argue with him? And yet if the people who don't know better don't stand up for the grace of God, the legalist will take control and create a spiritual bondage and wreak havoc in the church. As news analyst Elmer Davis once said of America, this will remain the land of the free only so long as it is the home of the brave. And so it is in the church. Verse 6. But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. You know, it seems Paul expected help from the elders in his confrontation with these Judaizers. But they took a back seat. It wasn't until the smoke had cleared and the winter declared before the elders publicly supported Paul. And these elders were apostles. They had a name, a reputation, a stature. Oh, but they left Paul unimpressed. Notice what he concludes. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something, they added nothing to me. Paul realized that he was on his own. Nobody was going to help him but God. I'll never forget when God laid it on my heart to start a church. I went to a mentor of mine for confirmation. Dan DeHaan was a popular Bible teacher in our area and a respected man of God. Dan started out cautioning me. I could tell he wasn't really in favor. But it was as if the Lord stopped Dan in midstream. For he said to me, he said, Sandy, there comes a time when you've got to start listening to God on your own. Only God can call this shot. How wise he was. I've discovered you don't really begin to trust the Lord until you turn loose of everybody else's hand. Catherine Jensen puts it this way, life is like being on a mule team. Unless you're the lead mule, all the scenery looks about the same. (laughs) And it's true. Verse 7. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, As the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And here is the realization that saved Christianity from schism. 
God gives to different ministers different callings to reach different people. God used Peter's Jewish heritage to reach the circumcised, the Jews. And he used Paul's familiarity with Gentile custom to reach the uncircumcised or the Gentiles. But one approach was no better than the other. Both were used by God to reach people. And this is still how God works. You know, some churches God uses to reach a family crowd. Other churches God uses to reach a biker crowd. God calls each of us to our own niche. And then verse 9, And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, these were the big dogs, man. This was Jesus' inner circle. Peter, James, and John were there on the Mount of Transfiguration and in the Garden of Gethsemane when no one else was invited. But when those who seemed to be pillars perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. After Paul's showdown with the Judaizers, the men that Paul had come to Jerusalem respecting ended up respecting him. In the final analysis, labels and reputations and titles didn't really mean much. You know, they still don't. There's certainly no substitute for courage and calling and conviction. Over the years, I've watched people sashay into our church thinking they were somebody, posing to be somebody. And they wanted to enforce their brand of spirituality on the life of our church. They thought they were here to straighten out the rest of us. They tried to body slam the body with their version of legalism. And you know, we've resisted. And guess what? We're going to continue to resist. This is the house that grace built. The true church, or great, or the church is the true graceland. And with God's help, we all need to keep it that way. And as Paul discovers, the battle for God's grace is never over. It requires great vigilance. Notice verse 11. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face. Because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. Peter forgot the lessons that God had taught him. When the Roman soldier Cornelius was saved by faith and faith alone. See, God no longer divides men along racial or religious lines, as clean and unclean. Today, the only distinction that God makes among us is whether we're in Christ or not. In Antioch, Peter had believed this truth. He had hung out with the Gentile believers. That is, until the James gang arrived from Jerusalem. These heavy-hitting Jews, they intimidated him. Now he ate only with the Jews, not the Gentiles. He was as acting as if the Jews were seated in first-class coach, as if Christianity had its first string and its second string. Notice verse 13. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him. 
so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. And you see, this is why we can never go soft on legalism, for it spreads like wildfire. Even Barnabas was influenced by Peter's hypocrisy. You see, Barnabas was Paul's sidekick. He should have known better. He had seen God work among the Gentiles. He knew it was by faith and faith alone. Yet the deception of legalism was so subtle that even Paul's most trusted ally lost his grip on grace. Realize legalism has a definite appeal. The idea that I can do it, that I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps, it flatters my pride. It lures the proud man into its web. A legalist measures himself against others and he points to his or her own self-righteousness. Whereas it's humbling to admit that there's nothing I can do except to trust in the merits of someone else. In the merits of Jesus. Paul continues in verse 14. He says, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. Peter was a Jew, and yet he wasn't a strict adherent to his own law. How could he expect the Gentiles now to do more than the Jews? Paul calls out Peter for his hypocrisy. And friends, this took guts. Realize Paul is going toe-to-toe here with old Pentecost Pete. I mean, this was the man who led the church. This was the head honcho. You recall the Lord himself gave him the nickname Peter or Rocky. Imagine putting on the gloves and going a few rounds with Rocky Balboa. You know, there's an old adage, a famous name never justifies an infamous act. Paul wasn't intimidated even by a pillar of the church like Peter. When a man's wrong, he is wrong, no matter who he is. Paul didn't shy away from confrontation. He got in Peter's face for the sake of God's grace. And then he says in verse 16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus. Recall this wonderful word, justified. You remember what it means? It means just as if I'd never sinned. Just as if I'd never sinned. So here's the gospel, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. It's because I put my trust in God's Son that He chooses to treat me as if I'd never sinned, even though I have and do and will. This is raging. This is bountiful. This is extravagant grace and love. You can try to force open the doors of God's blessing with your good works with your strenuous effort, but that door won't budge. Or you can put your faith in Jesus, and you'll hear the tumblers click. Instantly, that door will fall open. Blessings will come out. Love will pour down. It's all due to God's grace 
in your willingness to believe. It's simple. Verse 17. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. Now Paul says, and this was the Galatians' problem. Paul says that it's possible for a Christian to shoot himself in the foot. In other words, to undermine God's grace in his life. For God is treating us as if we'd never sinned. But you see, we can treat ourselves as if we have. God is loving you and he's drawing you and he's forgiving you and he's blessing you. But you can still be beating yourself up from guilt and from doubt. It's self-condemnation. God sets us free from rules and standards that we can't keep. Yet if we return to those rules, we invite back the guilt that comes from them. Don't return to the prison once you're set free. It says in verse 19, For I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. Paul is now a widower to the law. His relationship with the law is over, he says. Paul died to the rules. Like oil and water, like honey and vinegar, like hot summer days and chocolate bars. I mean, law and grace just don't mix. Moving forward, Paul is all about living by grace, and we should be too. He tells us how grace works. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul lived what's been called the exchanged life. We die with Jesus and now Jesus lives in us. And this is the life available to every Christian. See, Paul knew that a miracle occurs whenever a person becomes a Christian. I am crucified and resurrected with Christ. His death and new life now play out in me. We die to sin in Christ, but then Christ lives in us. He lives his life in us. Thus, rather than you live for Christ by keeping a set of rules, your job is to trust Jesus to do his living in you. The life that Paul lived was by faith in the power of another. And this is how we're to live. He says, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So, who's doing the living in your life? Are you trying and trying and trying to do or to be or to say? Or are you simply trusting the risen Christ, to live his life through yours. We need to rest and trust in Jesus to do his living in us. Paul concludes chapter 2. I do not set aside the grace of God. Oh boy, don't, don't ever set aside the grace of God. Why? For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. If we could be good enough for God, if salvation could come any other way than it has, 
Don't you think God would have spared his only son? Of course he would have. To say that a man can be saved apart from the blood of Jesus is to diminish the sacrifice Jesus made for us. There are many issues on which Christians should take a stand, but none, and I mean none, as important as God's matchless and amazing grace. And there we have Galatians chapters 1 and 2. So next Sunday morning, I hope you'll read Galatians chapters 3 and 4.